Several of you have told me, welcome back. Uh, nice to be, nice that you notice when I'm not here. Uh, and we actually have been out a good bit this month. August seems like a, a, a revolving door uh, for me for some reason. Uh, we had a week of vacation. I went to Grand Rapids, Michigan last week for a meeting with the overseers of the Reformed Baptist uh, Seminary. And then as soon as I got home, we turned around and went to uh, Lake Kiwi with Lydia's family for a family reunion get-together over the weekend. And so uh, we are very thankful for those opportunities, but we're certainly delighted to be back among you. Now, last week, as we were at this really nice house, one of the fun things that we did is Lydia's mother sh shared with us some old, and I mean old, home movies. Movies of her wedding. Uh, this is before video, so there's no, no audio. It's just, of, you know, grandma's wedding. And uh, of L Lydia when she was just a baby and as she's growing up and birthday parties and such. And then her sister Sarah and her brother Kelly uh, in their very earliest years, the Christmas gatherings and the birthdays and all of those other delightful times. And it was a great joy for her to reminisce, to remember the good old days, and to share those with us and with our children. Well, my text this morning, the title is The Good Old Days, and it begins, the writer of Hebrews begins this text with recall the former days. Now, as you read what he describes, you would say, well, those don't sound much like good old days. And on the, on the face of it, on the surface, they weren't very good, right? But what was really good was their experience of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering and affliction and hardship, the grace that he showed them as they endured such trials when their faith was new. And now, as the book of Hebrews has been written to uh, these saints who have been uh, in the faith for some time, and those afflictions continue to grow and to mount, and at times they may be tempted to think the trials are too hard, that the the cross is too heavy, that the cost of discipleship is too high. And so they're tempted to look back at not the good old days of God's help in the midst of affliction, but the days before that when they had no affliction because they were swimming with, just going with the flow. They weren't swimming against the current and going upstream as the gospel calls us to do. And so their, 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 their temptation is to turn back and so, Hebrews is written to counter that, and he says here in verse uh, chapter 10, recall the former days. The Lord gave you grace then. He will give you grace once again. But you have to remember. You have to recall. Don't be forgetful. Don't be short-sighted. I want you to notice as we go through this passage, there are four key words that appear many times in the book of Hebrews. Key themes we find over and over, and the first word is better. In verse 34, the word better, you knew that you had a better possession. In verse 35, the word confidence. And in verse 36, endurance. And then finally in verse 39, faith. So here's our four-point outline using those four words quite easily. First of all, remember what is better. Remember, recall, call to mind that which is better. Verses 32 to 34. Secondly, hold on to your confidence. Don't throw your confidence away in verse 35. Verse 36 and verse 37, our third point is you need endurance. And then finally, in verse 38 and 39, 
live by faith. So that's our outline. Let's see how that's applied to us this morning. So first of all, remember what is better. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, early in your Christian experience, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Well, who wants to remember that, right? Now, let's stop before we get to that part. Some of you can remember those early days in your Christian experience. Now, if you were born into a Christian home and you were converted very young, you might not be able to relate to this, what I'm getting ready to say. But those of you who had a few years where you were really trying out the emptiness of the world and the loneliness and the isolation that sin brings, the guilt and the shame, and then you were delivered, you were set free. And scriptures came to you with this freshness and this joy that you didn't imagine possible. You had experienced some of those miseries of life without Christ, but now in Christ you have a joy inexpressible and full of glory because you've come to realize that all those other treasures mean nothing because Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is the one who truly is worth living for. And the fullness and the freeness of the gospel of living in Christ is better than anything else the world could offer to us. And even if hardships come into our lives, there is a joy that is not only inexpressible, but inextinguishable. You had this amazing experience of joy in Christ that influenced everything that came into your lives. That that spiritual fervor gave you a hunger for the Word, gave you a readiness to serve in whatever manner it might look like. There was an eagerness to proclaim the gospel, to tell people what Jesus had done for you. Anyone who would listen, you would give them an earful of the goodness of God to you. But over time, the details of life just sort of can get in the way. Maybe some of that initial zeal has tempered a bit. Grace doesn't seem quite as amazing as it once did. And you've gotten maybe weighed down a bit or mired in some of the cares of the world. Not, not so much the, the, the gospel being choked out like, like Jesus describes the thorny soil in the parables of the soils where, where the cares of this world choked out the word entirely, but just weighed down and losing sight of what matters the most. Your zeal is tempered. Your, your joy is, is elusive, and you're just attached to other things. Let me tell you, that's a dangerous place to be. That's not a, a sign of spiritual health. And God is saying to you, and he's saying to me, remember, recall those former days. Call to mind what it was like to be fueled with spiritual zeal. Call to mind what it meant that the joy of the Lord was your strength. How did you lose it, and how can you get it back? Well, the first place, the first step in restoring that spiritual vitality, that spiritual vigor, is to remember. Remember the joy that was your daily experience. Remember the feast that you found as you opened the Bible and you read the Word of God and you, you, you learned it, you meditated upon it, you talked about it with your friends, that the Word of God was dwelling among you richly. Remember that deep satisfaction that you experienced when you saw God use you in someone else's life. 
He had no idea that in serving or in listening, in encouraging, that God could use you in that way, and it would be so overwhelming and so amazing. Remember the sweetness of God's grace, the gentleness of the, Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, even when you failed His grace in restoring and compassion toward you. Remember those things. That's the first step in restoring spiritual vigor. Richard Brooks, in his commentary, well in commentaries, says this, this remembering is intended not least to bring afresh to mind the divine support under trials. His love tasted through our afflictions and his marvelous tendency to turn the worst of trials into the best of blessings. Have you seen that? An enormous trial came into your life and and your first impulse was, oh no, but as you saw God sustain you and bring great blessings through that which you never ever would have chosen and you realize God has done something amazing through that trial, remember that word remember is a compound word, by the way. Uh, sometimes it, 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 it's a, it, it indicates deliberate remembering. Sometimes we just sort of remember things, right? Uh, you, you, you see something in the day and it, it triggers a memory and you're like, oh, I remember that. Uh, it's, it's passive. This stuff just, just sort of pops into your mind. That's not what he's talking about. Here he's saying deliberately, intentionally, purposefully call these things to mind. Bring them back to the front of your consciousness. Remember, call to mind. Kind of like watching those old home movies. I remember that. What was that like? And we, and we talk about it and we, and we celebrate those events once again. It's an intentional and purposeful review of past events. Here, it's remember how you endured a hard suffering a hard struggle. And you might say, well, who would want to remember that? I just didn't forget those things. Well, he says, remember, not just what you endured, but what God did in your life as you endured them. Three things he tells us that they endured. First of all, he speaks about public reproach and affliction, public exposure to reproach and affliction. Now, None of us here likes to be ridiculed. None of us likes to be mocked. None of us likes to be rejected. None of us likes to be embarrassed. But we don't live in what they call a, an honor-shame culture. If you're from the West, I mean from the East, and we have a few here who are from Asian or, or, or uh, well, Asian cultures, you understand honor-shame culture. And to be outcast, to be despised, to be rejected, to be uh, 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 mistreated, ridiculed, that was nearly catastrophic. It's hard for us to conceive of just how difficult that was. But you know, our Lord told us that the servant's not greater than his master. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Just, just, Just bank on that. Don't expect better treatment from the world than the world gave to me. And that, again, that's very difficult in that culture, certainly in ours as well. And one of the reasons for shame, one of the purposes of shame is to isolate. People heap uh, all kinds of invective and all kinds of accusations and ridicule on someone so that nobody wants to associate with that person because if if I associate with him, then they're going to do that to me too, and I don't want that. And so it's an effort to isolate that individual. But amazingly, it says here, 
Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. That word is fellowship, koinonia. You participated in common with their experience. You entered into it with them. You were not running and hiding and shielding yourself from that struggle, but you were standing with them, and if it hits you, so be it. But you stood with them so they would not feel that isolation that was intended to be placed upon them. That's the first experience. The second experience is some endured imprisonment. And those who did not endure imprisonment showed compassion to those who did. In other words, they went and visited them in prison knowing that, oh, you're his friend? Well, then we're going to lock you up too. They were willing to take such a risk. They were willing to go public, not hide. And they visited their brothers and sisters who were in the, in the prison for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They showed them compassion, meeting their needs, caring for them. The third thing, he says, some even had their homes plundered or seized. Now, here in America, it's the land of the free and the home of the brave, right? And one of our fundamental civil rights is the right to own property. Don't you take my property away, right? In Hebrews 10, it says, you rejoiced. You accepted with joy the plundering of your property. And there's something in us that just doesn't compute, right? Now, you might ask, well, who was it that plundered the property? The text doesn't really tell us, but the context gives us a strong indication, right? Who was ridiculing and shaming? Well, it might have been family members, but I can guarantee you it was the official religious authorities, and in the Jewish culture, the religious authorities, there wasn't a division. They had, they had public and governmental authority, too. There was a partnership there. And so the Sanhedrin were able to carry out trials and, and affect sentences and ruin lives. And who was it that threw people in prison? Not the, the neighborhood ruffians. That's the authorities. So who was taking away property? Probably the same group. Probably the authorities. Now, in our day, in our culture, when you see the government overstepping and taking uh, such steps against believers, what do we do? We call a lawyer, call a congressman. We, we enact uh, all these protests, and we, we, take, uh, uh, we, we exercise our civil rights in order to protect our property. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but where's that spirit that says, for the sake of Jesus Christ, I rejoice that I would suffer shame? that I would be experience reproach and even have my stuff taken away, even in my very home, as it were. And we look at that, and that just doesn't make sense. I want, I want to hang on to that thought for a minute. This is something similar. It's probably later than uh, this may be the second generation of believers. And there's a reason for that. We won't go into it right now. But, but I want to read to you from Acts chapter 8. Uh, when persecution first broke out in a major way in Jerusalem. You remember Stephen had preached this powerful sermon in the public square, and the people absolutely were in a frenzy of anger, and they rushed at him, and they stoned him to death. And then you come to chapter 8. It says, and Saul, that Saul of Tarsus, approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And they all went into hiding, and they, no, it doesn't say that. 
Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And the subsequent verses tell us that those who scattered everywhere they went, they told people about Christ. But there was an organized, systematic, authorized, dragging away people, putting in prison, seizing property, persecution. So there was certainly that first wave. Maybe there was another wave. Maybe this is a third wave. We don't know. But you might say, aren't these memories that I would rather forget? The point is recall your response to these afflictions. Recall the way God sustained you in the midst of these afflictions. Recall the way God sharpened your understanding of that which truly matters, that which is better in the midst of these afflictions. They accepted even the seizing of their property, their plundering of their property, not with a stoic kind of uh, acceptance or stiff upper lip, but rather they rejoiced. They rejoiced. Who does that? It seems impossible to conceive of that. But the reason they were able to do that is because of what they knew. They used their minds and they said, you know, I'm watching these people take this stuff away from me that I've worked hard to earn and to buy, but I've got a better possession possession they can never touch. My treasure is not laid out on this earth because moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. And maybe those are even authorized thieves. No matter. I've got a treasure in heaven. Moth and rust cannot destroy. Thieves cannot break and steal. And my, tr- my heart is where my treasure is in heaven, and it is safe, and it is secure. Look at uh, Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21. This is the words of our Lord. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. They have demonstrated in those days gone by, they demonstrated where their treasure was. They demonstrated where their heart was. And they demonstrated that it really works, as it were. A heart that's set on the things of the Lord can actually rejoice in the midst of circumstances we would think are unacceptable. They took to heart those instructions of our Lord in Matthew chapter 5. Remember in the the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Beatitudes, the last one, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can take away my house, but you can't take away the kingdom of heaven. I got something you can't touch. In fact, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He doesn't say rejoice and be glad because that's what we're made of. He doesn't say just just, just suck it up buttercup. He says, you have something that no one can touch. You have a reward in heaven that is great. And because you have that and it's untouchable, what others may do to you is irrelevant. And whatever people may say to you is nothing in comparison to my well-done, good, and faithful servant that we'll hear on that day. You know, if you spend your whole life laying up treasures on this earth, and then it's plundered for whatever reason, whether it's uh, 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 bad guys breaking in or a government that becomes tyrannical or maybe an earthquake or, or a flood or some other natural disaster. It's catastrophic. 
My life's work, it's gone. Stories told, I don't know how many of you remember Dean Jones. He was an actor that did the Herbie movies years and years ago. Dean Jones was a believer. And the story was told that his house burned down. And as he's standing in the front yard watching this house just completely engulfed in flames, a fireman walks outside with a guitar and says, what do I do with this? And Dean Jones said to him, do you know how to play Amazing Grace? And they stood in the front yard and sang praises to the Lord. See, evil men can take away your possessions, but they can't touch those treasures laid up in heaven. That's why prosperity that we're experiencing can be its own particular kind of temptation. We face that seduction that this world holds out for us about the treasures on earth. Back when I preached the book of Revelation, we talked about the beast who was oppressing the church, but we also talked about the harlot who was seducing the church. There are parts of our world today that are experiencing oppression and persecution. That's not so much going on now, but we're experiencing seduction. And if we're not in tune to it, if we're not aware of it, we'll buy into it. And we'll lay up treasures on earth. And then when those hard things do come, the idea of rejoicing seems utterly, utterly foolish. But see, they're rejoicing. It was not detached from reality. It wasn't some kind of insanity, just laughing in the face of pain. There was reason. There was logic behind it. You know you have a better possession. Look in chapter 11. We're going to be diving into that, uh, Lord willing, next week uh, and for some weeks after. But it speaks of the heroes of the faith. And look at verses 9 and 10, speaking of Abraham. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, and as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Faith sets his heart on the promise, right? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's living in tents. He can't build a castle or a mansion or even a nice house. He's living in tents, but it doesn't matter because he's looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Look at verse 13 and following, speaking of all of, the, uh, all of the heroes of the faith, the Old Testament saints, the patriarchs, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better, there's that word, better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. But he's prepared for them a city. That word better that we find in verse 34, they have better possessions. It appears 10 times in the book of Hebrews. And it's one of the most important words and themes in the entire epistle. It could be translated more excellent. Jesus is better, he's more excellent than the angels we read in chapter 1. In chapter 7, we read that we have a better hope in the, in the gospel than the law could ever provide. We read that Jesus is the guarantor of a better or a more excellent covenant. Chapter 8 tells us that Jesus, or that the covenant that Jesus mediates is better than the old covenant. And then again, as I just read in chapter 11, that the saints of old desired a better country, a heavenly one. And in fact, the martyrs who willingly laid down their lives were, were willing to do so because they knew they would rise again to a better life 
So the reasoning throughout this epistle is don't go back to that which is inferior because Jesus is better. His sacrifice is better. His priesthood is better. His covenant is better. His promises are better. His hope is better. His reward is better. And because that is all true, why would anyone ever consider turning back to that which is inferior? You might be able to see it. You might be able to touch it. You might be able to handle it. You might be able to enjoy it immediately, but it will leave you disappointed. It will leave you empty, and it will lead you to destruction. Is it hard now? Oh, that's okay. Because what he has in store for his people is infinitely better. It's not only better, but it's abiding. It's permanent. Moth and rust cannot destroy it, and thieves cannot break in and steal. Have you ever thought about what it means to be secure? You know, some people are wrestling with insecurity, and some people talk about security. You talk about financial security. You talk about personal security. You talk about all manner of security, military security, right? Security is when what you treasure most is not vulnerable. When what is most important to you, what you value most, what, is, what you treasure the most is utterly, absolutely, totally secure. That's why we have all the gold locked up in Fort Knox, because people treasure, people treasure gold, so they lock it up and make it where nobody can get to it. What are some of the things that people look to for their security? The, the approval of other people. As long as I have other people's approval, if people like me, I feel good. But if people don't like me, it's devastating. Or maybe it's appreciation. I want people to appreciate. I want the pats on the back and the attaboys. I want the love of maybe just one or two people, a happy marriage or children. But what if you have that and then that person dies. If that is the source of your security, that becomes catastrophic and you can't recover until you find no reason to live. It's interesting how many love songs in secular music are utterly idolatrous. I can't live if living is without you. Well, then you've made an idol out of that person. We tend to treasure our cherished freedoms. If you tread on me, then life can never be normal. That's not what we read in Hebrews 10, is it? We treasure our possessions that we've spent our entire lives amassing. We store up and we build bigger barns. We treasure the ability to simply be self-sufficient. And as you get older, and you've got this confidence, I can do for myself, and then you get older and you lose that ability and you have to depend on others. And if your dependence is not on Christ, you can be lost. Retirement can be a heartbreaking time for some because their significance was entirely wrapped up in their careers and their success and their work. And there are statistics that show some people, very shortly after they retire, they just plummet because what they treasured is gone. You may treasure your gifts or your talents or your abilities. That's the source of your confidence. If those gifts are taken away through injury, through illness, through other reasons, you're lost. Maybe you treasure your appearance. And the most important thing in the world is to look prettier, to look handsome. And all kinds of effort and time goes into uh, exercise or beauty treatments or whatever. Well, what happens if an injury mars your appearance? Or some affliction comes upon you, and, or just age and you start to wrinkle? 
What happens if that is your treasure? See, these are all good things. It's okay. Any of those are good things. They're all right in their proper place, but they can't be treasures. And as long as your most prized treasure is utterly safe and protected, you will feel secure. But if what you prize the most, what you treasure the most, is vulnerable, it's like you're on a treadmill, and the only thing you know how to do is just run faster and faster and faster, but you're not going to get anywhere. Your life, if you lose that which is most important, your life falls apart. You can't imagine, how could I possibly respond with joy? How could I possibly accept this painful providence with anything anything other than despair? Well, it's because your treasure's in the wrong place. So he says, remember. Remember what it's like when your treasure is in the right place and when those things came and you responded with joy. Remember. Where did that joy come from? It came from the confidence that you had in Jesus Christ. So the second thing, and that was our biggest point, by the way. That was the longest part. That's the longest part of the text, too. But the second thing he says is don't throw away your confidence. Hold fast to your confidence. Verse 35. Therefore, because you have this better possession, because this, you have this abiding possession that cannot be taken away, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Remember Job? Old Testament saint, Job. He lost everything in a single day. He was a wealthy man, greatly blessed by God. He feared God. He shunned evil. And in one day, messenger after messenger came him and told him, all your livestock has been stolen or destroyed. And then the last servant comes, and and he looks at him, and he knows, I don't have anything left except my children. And that messenger says, your children were gathered together for a celebration. And what, a great wind, I'm guessing a tornado maybe, caused the house to collapse, and they all were killed, and I alone survived to come and tell you. Can you imagine the loss and the sorrow Job was exposed, the heartbreak he experienced at that moment. How did he respond? Job didn't say, well, well, praise the Lord anyway. It wasn't this giddy, shallow escapism that characterizes some who think that is real faith. No, he was heartbroken. But he also didn't conclude, well, God must have abandoned me. I think his wife may have concluded that, but he didn't. He didn't throw away his confidence. What did he do? It says, then Job arose, which means he was probably sitting down when they gave him all the bad news. You don't want to, you don't want to be standing for this. Sit down. He arose. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. Those were uh, expressions of grief and sorrow in that day, extreme grief and sorrow. He fell to the ground. He collapsed, and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Can you imagine the confidence in the grace and the wisdom and the goodness and the sovereignty of God that had to be behind Job's making those statements? That he could worship a God who in his sovereign will divested him of all of his belongings and took his precious ten children in what we would call an act of God. 
This was not a, a trivial and glib denial of the enormity of his pain, but it was a mature, it was a godly, it was a substantial and a humble, God-exalting response of faith. Worship. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. And he doesn't say, how dare he? He says, may his name be praised. He looked back. Naked I came from the womb. He looked forward. And naked I will return. Then he looked up. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. And he fixed his gaze upon that God and said, blessed be his name. Our confidence is not in our own strength. Our confidence is not in our own endurance. Our confidence is that we have a throne of grace with a better high priest who shows better grace and better mercy than you'll find anywhere else in all the world. And at that moment, Job approached that throne of grace by faith. Centuries, millennia before Jesus had even come. And he found mercy and received grace to help in his time of need. These early believers, they they had been bold in the face of persecution. You remember in, in the book of Acts, when persecution broke out, before chapter 8, earlier on, there was great persecution. The apostles were arrested. They were threatened. They were told, don't preach his name any longer. And I want you to notice the amazing response that we see in Acts chapter 4 of the church. The, 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 <clears throat> Peter and John come back and report what had happened and the danger that was there now. And it says, when they heard it, the people of the church, they lifted their voices together to God and said, oh God, would you protect us from harm? That's not what it says. It's a sovereign Lord. God, you're in control. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. They're quoting Psalm 2. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, where they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Not a thing had happened apart from the sovereign will of God. They're reminding themselves of these vital, essential realities. And then there's their prayer. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And that word boldness, by the way, is the very same word as confidence in Hebrews chapter 10. Grant us not safety, protection, help us hide so they don't catch us. Grant us the courage, the boldness not to back down, but to continue to boldly, confidently proclaim your word. That's what Stephen did. He lost his life over it. In his dying words, you remember, Lord, don't hold this sin against them, just like his Lord. In his dying vision, he looks and he sees Jesus standing, waiting to receive him into glory. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me. They didn't pray for protection. They didn't pray for safety or comfort. They didn't call their congressman or a lawyer and file a lawsuit. They didn't gather together some civil action. We see them praying for boldness, for confidence. That can't come from within us. That's something we must look to him to receive. But they recognized, part of their confidence was that the enemies of Christ were only doing what God had predestined that they would do. They were limited. They were reined in. They were hedged in, as it were, by the sovereign decree of our God. So they were confident they're under the care of their sovereign Lord. 
and that God was going to fulfill in them all of his sovereign purposes. That could include suffering for his name, and they recognized that. That was a a, a part of the cross they had taken up to bear as they followed Jesus in discipleship. And that's the confidence they embrace. It's a confidence you and I must also embrace. How do we do that? Well, he says you need, thirdly, endurance. So we're to remember that which is better. We're to hold on to our confidence. But thirdly, recognize we need endurance. Look for verse 36 and 37. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Do you realize you need endurance, and so do I? Tom Schreiner in his commentary says, endurance here manifests itself in faithfully doing the will of God. And I might add, doing the will of God faithfully in the face of contrary circumstances, in the face of opposition. It's a continual faithful obedience, as some have said, a long obedience in the same direction, undeterred by what might come your way. Now, the endurance that we see here seems like it's beyond our ability. And let me tell you a little secret. Guess what? It is. You and I don't have what it takes to endure the kind of things this world throws at us. That's why we have the armor of God, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, and so forth, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We don't have the resources in ourselves to go up against the evil one and his devices, but our God does. And he will give us endurance. We read of Christians who go through hardship, maybe persecution, maybe just afflictions, maybe just incredibly painful illness. And we we see that and we go, I don't know how this person does it. I could never do that. And you know what? You're right. You couldn't until you have to. Because when the Lord in his sovereign will and wisdom brings difficulty into your life, he also brings infusions of grace to enable you to do that which you didn't think it was possible for you to do. And we have seen that in our own lives. We've seen that in many of your lives. God brings unusual grace when he brings unusual trials. He does. He will give you endurance. It's not that you dig down deep inside of yourselves and draw from resources you didn't know you had. He gives those resources. And so you draw deeply from the reservoirs of the grace of God. There's a really good book I recommend. It's called The Insanity of God by a guy named Nick Ripkin. That's actually a pseudonym because many of the people he wrote about Uh, were in persecuted lands, and he himself had been. And so, but but this is a story of a missionary who made it a a, a source, a a project of study to go all of these persecuted lands, undercover, as it were, to interview persecuted believers. And he tells of an experience in the USSR where he meets a man named Dimitri. Dimitri had endured imprisonment for 17 years, he was the only believer in a prison of seven, or 1,500 hardened criminals in the Soviet Union. Every morning for 17 years, Dmitri would stand, face the east, the sunrise, raise his hands, and sing what he called his heart song with all his vigor, with all his voice. And he did that for 17 years, and he endured countless beatings unspeakable torture at the hands of his captors. They were enraged that he would dare continue to do such a thing. His fellow prisoners would mock him and ridicule him and jeer him. They taunt him. They would bang their metal cups against the the, the bars to make noise to drown out his singing. They would hurl scraps of food and even human waste at him as he sung. 
His captors tried to break him. They even told him that they had murdered his wife and children, and there was nothing yet left to live for. But Dimitri kept on singing. He kept on trusting in Jesus Christ. After 17 years, when his captors realized, we can't break this guy, they determined to execute him. So they came, where they came to a cell, and they dragged Dimitri out to the place of execution. And by that time, everybody knew what was about to happen, and the most unusual thing took place. 1,500 hardened criminals stood in their cells, faced the east, held their hands up, and sang Dimitri's song, heart song of praise to God. And the guards were so taken aback, they pulled back and said, who are you? And Dimitri said, I am a son of the living God, and his name is Jesus Christ. Not long after that, he was released and returned to his family, who were not murdered. And so some years later, the writer of this book was able to interview him and hear this story firsthand. And we read this and we think, who does stuff like that? Well, those who know they have a better country, a better possession that cannot be taken away. Those who know that even if they were to kill my wife and my children, I have a family of believers from across all of eternity, and no one will ever take them away. Deep down, we hope that we're never going to need that kind of endurance, right? We're amazed that we hear those stories and we go, boy, I hope I don't ever have to have that kind of endurance. We're glad he did. (laughs) But he knew something of the grace of God. And if you were to ask him, Dimitri, would you go back and do that again? He'd probably say, no, I don't think so. I wouldn't sign up for it. Would you trade anything in all this world for what you gained in intimacy and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, not in a million years. There's nothing I would trade for what he has given me. And I've heard saint after saint who's been through great struggles say, I don't want to have to go through that again, but what I gained from it, what I experienced of Christ in it is irreplaceable. The motivation for this kind of endurance is that reward that's promised. Verse 36, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great Reward. You have need of endurance, so when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. How many of you children are in first and second grade Sunday school? Some of you guys are? Y'all, y'all started a study this morning about what? About the promises of God. Parents, review that with your children. The promises of God, they are intended to fortify our souls to endure when hard things happen. They are intended to motivate us to do things that we might not otherwise think about doing. One of the Puritans called the promises of God bribes to godliness. Don't lay up treasures on earth, moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Lay up treasures in heaven. And we see all these promises in Scripture. If you will live this way, if you will do this way, there is great reward. Set your eyes on that reward, on that future grace, as John Piper calls it, that you might have endurance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about the afflictions that he experienced in the ministry and the high cost that serving Christ had uh, had placed upon his life. And then he makes this statement. He says uh, in uh, chapter 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. 
And if you go back and read the catalog of what he's just described, it doesn't sound light or momentary. But he says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you put them on a scale, my trials, my afflictions, my hardships, and you put the scale of that eternal weight of glory, you would say, that's a ridiculous comparison. Why even waste your time? It's like there's a feather that he calls light and momentary afflictions, and there's this battleship called the eternal weight of glory. And, and you say, well, I wonder what would happen if I put this feather over here in that battleship over there, and you'd say, that's the dumb waste of your time because it's not worth comparing. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 4. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, how do I look at things I can't even see? We'll get to that in a minute. That eternal weight of glory, it seems far off. It seems like, when is it ever going to come? The writer of Hebrews says it's actually closer than you think. Verse 37, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. He's quoting here Habakkuk that was actually written 600 years earlier. And he's saying, it will come. He will not delay. 2,000 years later, he still hasn't come. But compared to that eternal reward, it's only just a brief time. Just getting started. It may seem like a long time, right? You may wonder, well, when is he going to come? When is he going to deliver us and give us that unsending heart? When is he going to create that new heaven and that new earth and show us that eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison? There were false teachers, scoffers, who asked that question. In Second Peter, Peter answers that. Chapter 3, he says, scoffers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, that's not true. Christ had just come. He had established a new covenant, and there were all manner of incredible evidences of his blessing. But then Peter goes on to say this in verse 8 and 9, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In light of eternity, this is not a long period of time. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, all those that he had set his heart upon from all eternity until that final number has come, he is going to wait. It is his grace, it is his patience that's delaying his return. The critical component, how do we lay hold of such endurance? How do we see that which we cannot see? How do we live in light of that which we can't see and handle and taste and touch and feel? And the answer is, we must live by faith. Look at verse 38 and 39. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You can't see that. You have to hold on to that by faith. You have to take his promise and you have to meditate on it. You have to chew on it. You have to think about it. You have to, 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 to consider all what it might look like. And some of it is beyond our imagination, but that's okay. 
God, expand our hearts and expand our minds to comprehend the incomprehensible. Help us to believe what seems unbelievable. Peter doesn't just say, suck it up, buttercup. He says, rejoice that you share Christ's sufferings, yes. But he gives a reason. Why? So that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We participate in his sufferings and in his glory. How wonderful is that? And so like Paul, we are to look to those things that not simply are seen, but those things that are unseen. This doesn't call for self-confidence. Oh, I can do that. This calls for recognition. I don't have that. I do not have what it takes at all. My confidence must be in Jesus Christ alone. My faith must be in his sustaining grace, not my ability, not my endurance, not my stick-to-itiveness. Well, I don't have that much faith. You know what faith is? Faith is simply trusting his faithfulness. Does he have that much faithfulness? Well, yeah. Okay, well, then you're fine. If you believe he has that much faithfulness, that's faith. Trust him. Take him at his word. See what he does. Chapter 6, verse 12, we read of the patriarchs. We're supposed to emulate their faith. It says, through faith and patience, they inherit the promises. They trusted the promises of God, so they waited patiently. You and I are called to trust God's promises and wait patiently. We come to chapter 11 next week. It's the hall of faith. Faith is demonstrated through their patient waiting, in some cases, years or even decades And maybe even not even in this life forgot to fulfill that which he has promised. The emphasis here is not on your faithfulness. It's on your faith. Tom Tom Schreiner points out that this kind of faith leads to true faithfulness. But it's persevering faith that we need in order to endure. There's a temporary kind of faith. We We all have seen this. We've seen people who have made decisions for Christ. They've prayed a sinner's prayer. They've put their trust in Jesus, as it were, and then somehow they walked away from it, and they have no perseverance at all. There's no faithfulness to their lives. True saving faith will always lead to faithful living. But that faithfulness is a fruit of ongoing faith. It's a a fruit of continuing to look and trust and rely on the Lord. And this living by faith perseveres. It's in contrast to shrinking back abandoning the faith, returning, turning aside. And those who shrink back, it says, are not only they forfeit their reward, it says they're destroyed. You don't want to shrink back. You don't want to be destroyed. You don't want to lose what God has promised. But more, you don't want to endure what he's threatened of judgment. Only those who persevere to the end are going to be saved. How do we do that? Well, by faith, by looking to him to preserve us. But I want you to notice, the, the, the writer of Hebrews has given these warnings over and over again. And the warnings are actually a means of grace that God uses to keep us trusting and keep us persevering. But he says in verse 39, we're not of those who shrink back. I've got, like in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, but I think better thing, I know better things about you, things that accompany salvation. His confidence wasn't in their virtue wasn't in their perseverance or their stick to It was in the faithfulness of God and the evidence of that he had seen in their lives. So this text is a call. It's a call to look back and also to look ahead. As you look around, your present circumstances might be very difficult. They also might be very seductive. They might be leading you away from Christ or trying to drive you away from Christ. 
Look back. Look at those marvelous experiences of God's grace. You, 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 you experience His faithfulness even in the midst of hard times. Look forward at the incredible promises of glory that He holds out for you and for me. So we look back. We look ahead. We look up at our God who sustains us and who promises great treasure, great reward. We must gain that eternal perspective. We must fix our eyes on that which is unseen and that which is eternal. You know, we can put so much hope in this world, in our possessions and in, in what we've amassed, in the treasures that we uh, have, have gained in this present age, those things that we can see and handle and taste and touch, right? And that can be our source of confidence. And it, 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 I can't see the new age to come. I can't see the new heaven and the new earth. I can't see what that glory must look like. I can read the book of Revelation, but it just seems very different from anything I can conceive of. Faith lays hold of that which seems elusive. Faith sets our heart and our hope on those things that we can't grab hold of with our hands. Faith sees that which is invisible. It's not that we're hearing audible voices or seeing visions. It's we see what God's Word says, and we say, God, illumine my mind more and more in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Make that, that eternal, ultimate reality more real to me. It's an incredible adventure to live by faith. Not always an easy adventure, but it's an incredible adventure. And if you were to ask those saints, and when we get to chapter 12, we, we, we have, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. What are they witnessing to? They're witnessing to the fact that it was worth it. It was worth it. God was faithful to all his promises. He will be faithful to you too. As we read in chapter 11, this hall of faith, over and over they waited. They obtained the promises. Maybe not in this life, but they obtained the promises, and they would say, it is worth it. We're going to close in a moment with a hymn, A Few More Years, few more years Shall Roll, and I want you to pay special attention. I love this hymn. Uh, the, the tune was written by Matt Foreman, a dear brother who was in our network. Matt actually went to college here and was, was part of our church for some time. But the last verse, he says, "'Tis but a little while, and he shall come again. Who died that we might live, who lives that we with him shall reign, because remember, he ever lives to intercede for us. Then, O oh my Lord, prepare my soul for that glad day. Wash me in thy precious blood." Take my sins away.